need of the modern person to want to overcommit and to yield to all the demands in our lives and how that is a form of violence and self-violence. Hello, and welcome to Methods, an exploration and guided prayer and meditation. Cassidy Hall is an author, filmmaker, podcaster, student, and trained counselor. She works as a teaching assistant at Christian Theological Seminary, where she's studying for her MDiv and MTS degrees. She also serves as student pastor of First Congregational United Church of Christ, where she has begun the ordination process. Since 2017, Cassidy has served as the secretary of International Thomas Merton Society. Her writing has been published in the Convivium Journal, the Thomas Merton Seasonal, the Thomas Merton Annual, Volume 32, and has been featured on the Huffington Post, Patheos, and the National Catholic Reporter. She has also worked on the editorial staff for the Wilbur Award-winning blog, Sick Pilgrim. Born and raised in Iowa, Cassidy moved to L.A. in 2013 to work on the production team of the documentary feature film In Pursuit of Silence. The film's success on the festival circuit and beyond led to its worldwide theatrical release. Her directorial debut short film, Day of a Stranger, paints an intimate portrait of Thomas Merton's hermitage years and is anticipated for the release in 2020. All right, Cassidy, welcome to Methods. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's been a long time since uh, we had initially talked, um, but I'm glad that despite the craziness of what's going on right now in the world that we were able to to connect. Um, so you are from initially where? Iowa? Iowa. Yeah, originally from Iowa. Mm-hmm. So what's what's Iowa like? I can't I can't picture it. it. Well, it is wonderful. It is truly wonderful. It's a, a very beautiful landscape, lots of farmland and it's home. So. Do, do you think that that, that area shaped you spiritually at all? Yeah, I think there was something to the vastness of the land. Uh, when I lived in Los Angeles, the previous five years, um, before I moved here to Indianapolis, I used to think when I would look out at the ocean that, um, just the, the vastness of the fields and the wide open spaces in Iowa was my ocean that mm. I grew up with. Yeah. An ocean of, of wheat or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah. Soybeans, corn, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you uh, co-host a podcast that I listen to frequently called Encountering Silence. Um, so what is silence to you? Mm. Yeah. Silence to me is infinite spaciousness. And the best way for me to describe this was when I was traveling to all 17 Trappist monasteries in the U.S., I met with a monk. And I met with monks and nuns at every location I went to. And one question I would ask is, what is silence to you? And this monk said, he paused and he said, silence is the tomb of Christ. It is the place of infinite possibility. Mm. And that's something I hope that um, we kind of look at today with with this um, visualization practice I'm bringing is kind of tapping into the infinite spaciousness within ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of it kind of makes me just because I we had just talked about the the spaciousness of the land that you grew up in, kind of makes me think about. I wonder if that had a part to play in, you know, communicating that that silence and that inner spaciousness in like a, a visual, you know, a visual representation of that. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Um, so you are a huge Thomas Merton fan, am I right? 
I am. Yes. <laughs> that was a wild guess. That was a wild guess. Um, <laughs> now you made a, a short film about Thomas Merton. Um, and I know that you, you quote him a lot on your, on your own podcast. Um, so what about Merton is so compelling to you? And part B of, of that is if he were here today, what do you think he would say and what would you ask him? Wow. This is loaded. This is great. I think, yeah. So I find Merton particularly interesting because of the ways that he holds tension and paradox and Merton never shied away from thinking he knew something about a topic, but at the same time you might be reading Merton and he might contradict himself on the following page. Mm-hmm. So just his willing to openly process I've found incredibly helpful. Um, he was just very, very um, willing to navigate, willing to criticize, willing to explore. And, you know, that even went so far as to uh, criticize his, his Catholic faith. And um, yeah, and he certainly was not right about many things. Um, and he had a lot of great insights and thoughts. And I think Thomas Merton has been someone who has helped my thought life and helped me learn to more deeply question things and, uh, be willing to go to places and questions that I previously wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's definitely a, a freeing way of, of being to listen to someone who's so knowledgeable and so in tune with God, but yet they, they give permission to themselves and thus to you that you don't have to be right about everything and you can be speculative about, you know, about God or about your own life. What would you, what would you ask him if he were here today? Yeah. Um, you know, I've been seeing, there's been a few articles out there and friends who've spoken with monks during this time of the COVID crisis and, um, how monks are kind of like, well, this is making, this time is making us all monks right now. Right. And to a degree, um, that's, that's certainly true. Um, many of us don't have the, the rituals and practice that, that monks have that offer really a sense of sanity right now. And that, that habit and that, um, ritual. Mm -hmm. So if Merton were here today, I think I would ask him, (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't think I would ask him about the crisis. Mm -hmm. I think I would ask him, you know, about things I've read of his that I've disagreed with or questions I have about his life or politics. I would actually be really curious about his thoughts on American politics right now. Mm. which is something he was pretty outspoken about in uh, Cold War letters and in a variety of other of his writings. Um, Yeah, but I think something that he might yield to right now is from his book, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, Mm -hmm. where he talks about um, just this, this, this need of the modern person to want to overcommit and to yield to all the demands in our lives and how that 
is a form of violence and self-violence. And I think that he would probably, um, yeah, just really point to the need to slow down and the need to listen to this time of collective slowing down. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that with the, the COVID-19 crisis that it's helped you to, um, reprioritize some of those things that, that may have seemed really important before, but, uh, maybe are taking less of a, less of a role right now. Yeah. I think, you know, when we were, uh, chit chatting a little bit before this, I think one thing it's made me really yield to is, uh, bodily wisdom and listening to things like intuition and what my body's saying about rhythms, about rest, um, even about, you know, whether or not to eat or have a snack. I think that that's been, that's been something that's really heightened in my awareness. And in terms of prioritizing, most definitely, um, I've spent more time with my nephews over FaceTime now than I did beforehand. And, you know, they're in different States, but that's been a really big gift of just realizing what's, what's really important to me at the end of the day and, mm-hmm. and not being, trying to not be debilitated by, by our lack of certainty and unknowing right now. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because, you know, a lot of us contemplative types, um, are really frozen by the moment, even if we've been in practices for years and that need to, to control, like we still had control over what our practice looked like and what it feels like and not what it feels like necessarily, but just realizing the lack of control in these moments, I think really can solidify a a silence practice or a contemplative practice right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know personally for me, um, as someone who's kind of um, naturally introspective, not a ton had changed uh, when this whole thing started, for me at least. And um, and I was kind of thrown off a little bit at first because I would hear, and I know that I'm in a privileged position compared to a lot of folks, um, but it did surprise me how many people that I spoke to were really struggling with uh, lack of mobility and lack of communication and lack of social uh, connections. And, and it was just, it was odd because for me, it felt like not a ton had changed, but I did notice that Mm. seeing as how there was no obligation for me to go out and to work and to have various responsibilities. And I had the whole day to sit in silence if I wanted to, it made it less, feel less of a priority because, you know, it felt like, well, you know, I've got all day to do this, like I can do it whenever. And then a lot of times it just wouldn't happen. And, you know, I'd get caught up doing this and that. And, and then I saw so many people kind of embracing this uh, attitude of during this (laughs) pandemic, like you've got to get in shape, you've got to eat right, you've got to get all your work done, you've got to start a new project, you've got to finish that project, you've got to fix up the house, do all these things, be productive. And I have been rebelling against that by by uh settling and, and being silent as as much as possible did you feel like th- that you kind of had that american drive at all during this period to be productive i think initially at first yeah there was something to that that was really enticing right it was really exciting that suddenly i had 
all this time. And I say all this time in quotes because that hasn't changed, right? We still have 24 hours in a day and now we're just exhausting ourselves on Zoom and Skype, right? I mean, it's, yeah, I think at first, um, and I'd love to read, could I read this, uh, this Merton quote? Cause this fits quite appropriately right here. Um, which is the one I was referencing earlier. So in conjectures of a guilty bystander, he writes, there's a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender oneself to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our own inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes the work fruitful. That's heavy. <laughs> yeah, it's a big yeah. one. It's one that I, I come back to time and time again for a reminder. There's His writing is, is so dense. Like, I mean, just one sentence of what you, of what you just said, you know, you could chew on for right. days. I actually, Absolutely. I actually had one that from the book that you, that you sent to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I actually pulled out a quote to, to ask you to, to talk about. Um, it's from the last section and a pretty well-known passage, but I just wanted to see what your, your thoughts on it were. He says, um, in using non-gender inclusive language, obviously, but he says, what is serious to men is often very trivial in the sight of God. What in God might appear to us as play is perhaps what he himself takes most seriously. At any rate, the Lord plays and diverts himself in the garden of his creation. And if we could let go of our own obsession with what we think the meaning of it all is, we might be able to hear his call and follow him in his mysterious, mysterious cosmic dance. We do not have to go very far to catch echoes of that game and of that dancing. When we're alone on a starlit night, when by chance we see the migrating birds in autumn descending on a grove of junipers to rest and eat, when we see children in a moment when they are really children, when we know love in our hearts, or when, like the Japanese poet Basho, we hear an old frog land in a quiet pond with a solitary splash. At such times, the awakening, the turning inside out of all values, the newness, the emptiness, and the purity of vision that makes themselves evident provides a glimpse of the cosmic dance. For the world and time are the dance of the Lord in emptiness. The silence of the spheres is the music of a wedding feast. Mm, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing I really take from that and kind of hinge on to is the, the concept of play and the importance of play and how easily and quickly we forget that and get further away from that. Um, I mentioned my nephews earlier in this conversation and I have four of them, and they're six, three, three, and not quite one. And the reason that I make them such a priority in my life is because they point me to they point me to this this importance of play and the significance of that, um, and help me to create better priorities. You know, remind me to that 
goofiness is important, that noticing the butterfly is important, that loving a rock and painting it is important. And yeah, I, I think there's something about children in general that reminds me of the true self, um, which Merton also often talks about and speaks to. And this idea that for me, when I see children, I see people that are closer to their most close to their truest self, um, because they, they have that innocence and they have that freedom and they have that, that deep sense of belonging and safety and an understanding of, yeah, truth and beauty, um, more deeply and more closely. And of course that doesn't go for every person, right? There's kids that go through terrible things and just maybe don't have that kind of safety and, and freedom. Um, yeah. And so when I, when I see that, and when I, when I hear what you, what you read, I think about that, that significance of play and that, yeah, just, it's a beautiful thought to think that our play could be some of the most important work we do on this earth. Right. It, as he mm-hmm. writes, it's a serious, could it be a seriousness to God? Mm-hmm. I just, I love that. I love that, you know, me belly laughing until I cry could be, um, serious and holy, holy work. Right. Like that's mm-hmm. so cool to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I love those, those images. There's a, um, uh, a poem by Hafez that I, it's probably one of my favorite ones of his, but mm-hmm. where he says, uh, uh, God and, and him are like two fat men in a small boat and every now and then they bump into each other and laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it it also makes me think of the the Vedic idea that that every person is an incarnation of God in in drag, you know, uh mm-hmm. veiled by form and how when we encounter one another it's an mm-hmm. opportunity to to see God playing another role so well that that um, God forgets God's self. Mm, so, um, yeah, this yeah. season with, with That's methods, great. we're focusing on vision and I'm trying to explore a wide variety of, of iterations of vision, whether it's, you know, a cosmic vision like the, the Bhagavad Gita or whether it's, um, more of like a spiritual intuition or whether it's mm. meditation that focuses on visual images. But can you speak to how vision relates to silence, either in Christianity or in another tradition? Hmm. Yeah, I can speak from my own experience of silence and vision. Um, and I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that infinite spaciousness. And in my experience of encountering silence, there's always a, a broadening, a deepening, a widening of myself and my connectivity to all other people. And to be a little bit more specific in terms of actual imagery, one thing I often visualize when I'm in silence or when I'm encountering this, this vastness is a tree whose roots go deeper and longer and wider until they connect to all other living things, people, Mm -hmm. land, everything. And So I think vision for me, as it pertains to silence, is just seeing that, you know, inescapable network of mutuality, as Martin Luther King would say, 
um, and recognizing our, not just our belonging to each other, but also our, our belovedness to one another, that we are each other's beloved and that we are, we belong to each other. Do you, um, do you ever consciously bring up that, uh, that image? Like when you're out in your day and you find your, your heart kind of like stuck somewhere, do you, do you mentally bring that to mind or is that something that just happens spontaneously? You know, I have brought that to mind, but never during like a, like when I'm bumping into something, which is a good idea. That could be a good reminder Mm -hmm. nudge if I'm not feeling like someone belongs to me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I like that. For for me, a silence, I believe, um, I, I feel like I can personally only get to that purity of vision that, that Merton talks about when I am silent or when, you know, I, I am embracing silence and when mm. the noise and the cacophony of the world or, or of my own thoughts and feelings and emotions can fall away for a time that what I thought I was seeing tends to drop to the background and what is actually there, that purity of vision kind of comes up and it, it's like a type of, of mindfulness, I think, like, uh, like a Vipassana. Have you had a, have you had a fourth and walnut experience? Oh, what a fun question. You know, and what you just said reminded me of one of his quotes from, from Davis Stranger, the essay, um, where he says, perhaps I have an obligation to preserve the stillness, the silence, the poverty, the virginal point of pure nothingness, which is at the center of all other loves. Mm. Um, so I just love that, like that kind of that purity of silence distilling into being this centeredness of all their loves. Mm. Yeah. Have I had a fourth and walnut? Um, huh? Yeah. I think I would, I would reflect on those moments of silence where there's a deep connectivity. Um, when I was more frequently practicing centering prayer, um, more often now I, I do more of just silent sits, um, essentially a similar thing, but just without maybe a sacred word. Um, I've had a, yeah, a few moments where that, that deepening and widening of connectivity just leads me to a place of deep emotion. And I just kind of start crying and mm-hmm. it's definitely been directly related to, seeing that belonging and that beloved connection. Mm-hmm. So, so you said you, you used to um, do centering prayer more often and now you, you do silent sit. So how would you, you said in the silent sit, you don't introduce a, a sacred word. How do you engage with uh, thoughts, feelings, emotions when they arise without the sacred word? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's the cloud passing, right? It's the seeing, acknowledge, acknowledging, and I think it's really important to honor those thoughts, feelings too, right? So kind of like this inward bow to those, um, watching the cloud and letting it pass, watching the feeling and letting it pass, but but it's really, truly seeing it, and so to some degree, right? I am engaging with it and acknowledging its presence. So your focus is more on the. The, the blue sky in the background, not so much the, the clouds. 
Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. It's a good way to put it. Do you um have an object of of focus at all um when there when there are no thoughts passing? Yeah, so I'm one that um I'm one of those people who prefers to keep my eyes open mm-hmm. during meditations and silence sits and prayers. Um I become extremely distracted when I close my eyes. And so I typically light a candle mm-hmm. and will watch a flame. Mm-hmm. Nice. Find myself um, doing the same thing, especially in services yeah. or, or scenarios where there's uh, vocal prayer or congregational prayer. I tend to to keep my eyes open. And mm-hmm. for me, at least, it, it gives a deeper uh, engagement with the prayer, at least for me personally, than if I were to close my eyes and let my thoughts kind of run out. So what, what made you make the switch from centering prayer to that? Was it a difficulty with the sacred word or? You know, I've just always rubbed up against structure, structured things (laughs) and, um, anything that tries to control or dominate. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think it was any thing that was necessarily something with centering prayer I disagreed with. There was nothing like that. Um, I think it's a great practice. And in fact, that's one thing during this time I would really like to be doing on zoom because I, there's something really special to me about, uh, communal silent sits mm-hmm. and, you know, and centering prayer. And so I, I do think that that's a great use, but yeah, ultimately it's just rubbing up against the structure of centering prayer and wanting to strip it down more and wanting to, you know, we, we have a tendency to layer things, put layer upon layer upon layer to something ancient, um, which is, you know, centering prayer did to a degree. Um, it was repackaged and remarketed so that we could understand it better. And Mm -hmm. as much as that makes sense at the end of the day, um, yeah, we all just want to be closer to the ground. We all just want to be closer to the truth. And so while what I'm doing isn't necessarily an uncovering or a peeling back of the layers, I guess for me, it feels like that, or I think I'm doing that. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. We're all just trying to walk each other home, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I um I don't know if you've read m- many of the the quietest mystics through the ages um but I I definitely identify yeah. a lot with with some of them and they were frequently um executed or you know jailed as as heretics um but I find myself doing the same thing rubbing up against mm-hmm. form and trying to to lean more into the emptiness and so I kind of mm-hmm. initially did the same thing with with centering prayer by changing uh, it less from like a devotional stance, like, like in Thomas Keating's version mm-hmm. more to a, a more apophatic version, like Cynthia Bourgeau. Right. What form of meditation are you going to lead our listeners in? Well, considering how life looks right now, right amid this COVID crisis and this enforced slowdown, I'm finding that so many of us keep wanting to do things. And so I'm I'm wanting to do something where maybe just the listener and all of us can just be and um, letting go of the need to do 
And sometimes that being can often mean rest or pause or sleep or awareness or wonder or gazing at one we love. Um, and so I'm just going to do a more of a visualization practice. So something I just want to walk us into that infinite spaciousness that we all carry around together. Um, and want us to individually walk into that. So it's kind of a guided visualization. All right. Well, this has been awesome. And Cassidy, I appreciate you coming on to talk. I hope you're doing well with the quarantine and the, the stay at home rules and um, we'll have to do this again sometime. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to.